When harvest time appears, ye shall be glad indeed. They that in the sowing weep shall yet enjoy and gladness reap. This evening we're turning to the Word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 228. But before you complete turning there, let's pause a moment to pray. Lord, we come to a passage of Scripture that sets our hearts to lamentation and causes us to see more directly and more clearly our weeping in this world, the sense, O Lord, of the heaviness of our sins and what it is to be forsaken by God to have that sensibility of your presence withdrawn from us. Oh God, we would cry out to you with the mourning of your people long ago that you would revive us with that plentiful rain such that even should the word come this evening with the bitterness of tears, sweet shall be the day of harvest. O Lord, we pray, perfect and mature that harvest of your word of true godliness in our hearts as we draw near to you. Would you cause Jesus Christ truly to be presented to us in such a way that his loveliness, his power and authority, his justice and judgment would be clearly seen and that we would have in our hands and in our hearts, that determination to leave all else and follow him, not that we may gain anything of this world, but that we may gain Christ. Draw near to us, we pray. Cause us to hear, even as the prophet prayed. Lord, we pray, also speak because your servants are listening. And so we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 4, page 228. Hear the word of God. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, And brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, 
a God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He brought the news, answered, and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid. For you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is God's holy, inspired, and vital word. If you notice, there's been a shift. Samuel is mentioned in the opening verse, and then he recedes into the background. Samuel will not appear again until chapter 7. From chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, we have what is sometimes called the Ark narrative. This is entirely focused, it would seem, on the Ark of God. The camera has shifted. We've panned away from Samuel to a deeper problem to the worship of God and particularly to the question of what is central to Israel's worship, this ark of God's covenant. And what we find is God fulfilling his word of judgment by removing his throne. If you like two headings, and here's the first, the ark of God's glory goes, first of all, into battle. 
We read of Israel's defeat before the Philistines. They suddenly come onto the scene in 1 Samuel. If you recall judges, they've become a problem. You might remember how they were a problem for Samson in particular, but now they've pushed their way, it would seem, further into Israelite territory. And in fact, we read that they're worried about the one, becoming the ones who will be under Israelite power, so they have, at least in their minds, some degree, some measure of power over Israel. It's not really surprising. This is how the time has gone during the, the, the period of the judges. Frequently, they were uh, brought under the subjugation of opposing nations. But now the Philistines will become a sort of arch enemy of God's people. And we know what God does with his enemies. And we know he's determined also to drive them out of the land of promise. So then why are they defeated? Why are God's people defeated? It's a bit of a pivotal moment. We come to something of real significance in verse 3. The elders, as the army marches back, recognize. It's a remarkable moment. They recognize who it was that really defeated them. And they say, it was the Lord. That's not really what we would expect. It isn't just the Philistines. It is the Lord's hand that has brought this about. But as right as that is, they get it wrong so seriously. Now, if you're thinking in your mind, what's the first thing that they get wrong? I hope it would be this. They never even inquire of the Lord. They never pause and reflect. Now, in previous defeats, Israel had inquired of the Lord in defeat against Ai. Joshua tore his clothes, we read in Joshua 7. He falls to the earth on his face before the ark of the, God, of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, they're crying out to God, why has this defeat come upon us? And the answer was, well, what was it? It was sin in the camp. That's exactly right. Against Benjamin, the apostate tribe, Israel goes up to battle and repeatedly asks the Lord, should we go up? They're defeated twice and very significantly. They inquire weeping, should we go again? Who should we send? Who goes first? They go to the ark of God and they inquire. And the Lord says, go up. And in the third battle, the Benjamites are almost completely wiped out. So here we have 4,000 soldiers. This is a small town. Some of us live in towns about this population. Think of coming home and they're all gone. The elders confess it is God, but they do not confess the righteousness of God in what he's done, nor make any inquiry about the cause. There is no crying out. There's no humiliation. Now, what happens when you and I think we know the answers and rush off? We'll consider that shortly. But secondly, a very serious misunderstanding of the ark itself. What is this ark? Well, you might say it's just a box, but it's more than just a box. It's a box in the holiest place in the tabernacle and later in the temple in which were to be stored the two tablets of stone inscribed with God's Ten Commandments, constituting documents for Israel's existence. Now, just imagine, maybe for a moment, if the Declaration of Independence were stolen. Isn't there a movie about that? Okay. 
Don't think that's happened. But this really happens. What do you do as a nation when your founding documents are stolen by your enemy? The covenant documents of God and the contents of this ark, this preserved, this hallowed place, proofs of God's faithfulness and of the obedience that God's people owe to him have all been taken away. Think of the ark a little bit perhaps like a safe deposit box, a secure container holding the law of God, a visual promise from God that although his people broke his law and continued to struggle, as we still do, he would securely keep that law and even dwell in their midst. So significant is this visual for Israel that on top of the chest, this secure box is placed what? The mercy seat. A picture of God's throne in heaven, but it is specifically called the mercy seat, signaling, yes, God's rule, authority, and his worship, and even with angels, pictures of angels bending over and adoring adoration of the rule of God, the God of all the universe. Notice the imagery here. Righteousness and justice, we read in Psalm 89, are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, Psalm 97 says. That's the picture. God sets his throne upon his law. He is determined to keep it unbroken by an immovable mercy and grace that will bring about the sure foundation of his rule. And that will be the wonder of angels and of men. Get the picture here. Here is this sacred, hallowed container in which God says to his people, that if he should fail to rule in mercy despite our law-breaking, then his whole rule and kingdom will collapse. Now, remember what the book of Hebrews says. This is a copy of the real thing. This is really what is taking place in heaven. The ark shows what is surely going to come to pass on earth, even as in heaven. The God of God, who cannot be contained by the heaven of the heavens. And in these days, we have the James Webb telescope that looks so far out to galaxies never before seen. Light from the most distant stars. God, who cannot possibly be contained by all the universe, comes to his people, will confine himself to this measure, even to the terms, if you will, of this container and box, and rule over his people meeting with them at this particular place, at this symbolic throne where blood every year is sprinkled to make atonement in mercy. And there he will even speak to a little boy, the boy Samuel. God, from this symbol and sign, demonstrates he rules his people in righteousness and mercy. And whenever the cloud would pass through the wilderness before God's people and their exodus, it would regularly appear over this throne. God showing that he is really present, really ruling. So what's the problem with Israel and this ark? Well, I think it's numerous. But one appears to be that Israel thinks that God is actually to be contained, controlled, and constrained by this box which means 
You can take him wherever you like and direct him however you feel. They long that they would have a king like the nations around them. Remember this. This is one of the themes of Samuel. We need a king. And here's the picture of God's own throne. Isn't it right? Isn't it good that he should be seen in this way? No, it's a great evil. And it becomes the mockery of the nations. Why is it evil? At first, it doesn't seem like wisdom. An acknowledgement of God's majesty. Wouldn't you want God to go with you? Isn't this right for Israel to expect that the divine warrior would come and fight our battles? That's a good thing. It might even seem like a sort of right confession. Our God is stronger, and he's with us. He's God of gods. Isn't he determined to show this to the pagans? Moreover, let's be honest, wasn't it sort of practical and expedient? We've got to do something. We just lost 4,000 men. What weapon do we have in our arsenal? And at this point, I think we ought to pause, even as we hear the Philistines crying out their own woes, and say over the top of our own heads and all of Israel, woe, woe, woe to God's people when we will not wait and inquire, but will attempt to manipulate him. Should we fail to wait? Should we fail to make a practice of inquiring of God? Then when the time comes for decision, when great matters are before us, we certainly shall not wait, but do what is expedient and what seems to be wisdom, but may in fact ultimately simply be paganism. Because I want you to consider the exceeding glory of the God of the ark. Notice what it says in verse 4. This is really telltale. I hope you noticed it. The people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. That's a kind of lengthy description. It could have just said, they brought the Ark. It doesn't say that. It speaks specifically to God's position high and lifted up far above the most mighty angels enthroned upon the cherubim who adore him in eternity and who longingly look into the things that are now revealed to us in Christ. There at the throne, they in heaven from the creation adore God. There is a deep irony in the way this is phrased. Let me read it again. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. As if, really, as if God will be manipulated in this way and God will bow down to any attempt to direct his hand and his power. How could anyone possibly think that the God of all the universe could be turned at will and his ordinances treated like a magical trinket? God's ark was to be behind curtains, not brought out as a secret weapon. God is here being blasphemed in the style of Indiana Jones, more than in true adoration and worship of his divine nature. 
Never was it to be moved, this ark, except at his express command, whenever the glory cloud rose up. And there is this wonderful statement that when God does rise up in the glory cloud and the ark follows to where he will position the cloud, then he comes against his enemies. We read of Moses speaking, Numbers chapter 10, 35, whenever the ark would set out, rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. Let them that hate thee Flee before thee. Flee before thee. Now, it was taken into battle once, sort of, at the walls of Jericho. But that was at the command of God. And again, Numbers 14, when Israel rebelled against going into the land of promise and then changed their minds, they go up to the border, they prepare to enter in. It says, Moses and the ark of God remained in the camp. And Israel suffered a terrible defeat. Victory goes where the ark goes. And his enemies flee before him. It was never to be used in such a way as Israel uses it. This is really idolatry. In fact, in a way, what Israel is doing is out-Philistining the Philistines. This is what we'll find in the coming chapters. This is what the Philistines think about the ark of God. That is to be manipulated, is to be a source of power. But this is idolatry. God will not be treated like the gods of the nations. And I love what Matthew Henry says in Practical Application. It is common for those that have estranged themselves from the vitals of religion to discover a great fondness for the rituals and external observances of it. For those that even deny the power of godliness, not only to have, but Uh, that even deny the power of godliness not only to have, but to have an admiration, the form of it. Frequently, the things of God can be admired. As long as it's only the form. As long as it can be directed according to our interests. Now, pause a second and notice what happens. We're kind of working through the narrative here. Even for pagans, this is a bit of a new tactic Think about this. You lose, in paganism, you lose your God. You lose everything. So here we have God, or one of these gods, the Philistines say, uh, being brought into the camp. And, of course, pagan gods were frequently called upon to wage war and secure the ends of battles. Sacrifices were offered that they might be placated and bring their power to bear. But this is innovative. Israel is really out-idolatrizing even the, the, the Philistines. They're treating God just like the gods of the nations, only more so. God will not be treated as one whose ordinances may be moved to our end. And if we think that he is to be treated in this way, then we are just as blind as Eli is. Well, why didn't they inquire of the word of the Lord through Samuel? If you were here before, remember chapter 3, there is a sudden movement, a a kind of revival of religion taking place in Israel. Suddenly, the word of the Lord comes again. It was rare, and now it comes to Samuel. He's established to be a prophet. Everybody from Dan to Beersheba, the whole country, in other words, everybody knows Samuel is the Lord's prophet. Why not inquire of the Lord through him? In fact, for that matter, Eli, we read, was a judge. We read it in this chapter. Why doesn't he do something? He's supposed to be saving Israel, and he doesn't. In fact, the text even goes to a more ominous tone 
in verse 4 when it says, and mentions specifically the two sons of Eli being present. Why don't they stop this blasphemy? It appears to me that Eli's sons are just given over to idolatry. But Eli is lacking in courage. He's got a different kind of idolatry. He worships his sons. He worships them. But the Philistines at least fear. They fear. They know the facts of the Exodus. They cry out in fear. There's going to be a great battle. They know that the outcome will be significant. But both Israel and Philistine, the Philistines here turn out to be the enemies. So, part two. God is glorified by defeating his enemies in battle. Who's the true enemy? Certainly the Philistines. But who is the enemy? God goes into battle against his own wretched, idolatrous people. There's the phrase, I think it originates in the 1940s. We have met the enemy, and he is us. So it is with Israel. They think the Philistines are the enemy. It isn't the Philistines. It's God. We have a tendency as believers to do what Ecclesiastes warns us not to do and complain about how the former days were better. And with that, to complain about the world in general, that things are getting so bad, our days are so dark. But could it be that even as we do that, there is hidden away in the locked compartments of our own hearts the same gold that Achan stole. And we ought rather to inquire of the Lord. And not to assume that the enemy is over there. It's those people practicing transgenderism and homosexuality. And look at what they're doing in the schools and this and that and the next thing. Who's the enemy? The enemy might be us if we attempt to use God. If we think that we can exalt ourselves to be king. Remember, Israel's seeking a king. They're looking for a king. They need a king. Who's king in Israel? Well, Eli was kind of supposed to be. Who's king in Israel? Kind of Hophni and Phineas? No, not really. Who's king in Israel? Their own hearts. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Turn God to your desires, attempt to manipulate him in this fashion, and watch out lest he turn and tear you in pieces. Look at all the deaths in this chapter. We start with 4,000, then we get to 30,000. That's equivalent to all the casualties from the fighting at Chancellorsville in 1863. And it is a chaotic defeat. Israel runs this time. It's not an orderly retreat. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die. Eli dies. Eli's daughter-in-law dies. It's like, when is the dying going to stop? We can see a picture here. We're meant to see a picture here. Whenever God brings his judgment upon people, whether it's out there or in here, a taste, a picture, a window into the coming judgment. This is what it will be like, only more so. So the ark is lost. The ark 
is lost. This is one of those moments where if you read it for the first time, and it's good that we try to do that when we come to Scripture, we read it for the first time, we just feel like we should be about ready to tear out our hair. What is wrong? This is crazy. How could God's own symbols, the sign of his presence, his rule, his mercy, his law, his righteousness, how could this possibly happen? What is going on? Isn't he the mighty God? Isn't he the God who's made a covenant? Isn't he over all? Even the Philistines are here acknowledging his power. What has happened? Well, look again at who is responsible. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli himself. Idolatry and cowardice. The blindness that we started to read of in chapter 3, we find completed in this chapter Eli's eyes are set so that he can no longer see. He is utterly blind. The darkening has come fully upon him, and this is the capstone. He has allowed the ark of God to be taken into battle when God never said march. And so, God's word is fulfilled against Eli. We read in chapter 2 this prophecy. This will be the sign to you, Eli. Both of your sons shall die in a single day. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death, we read in chapter 2. And so he does here because they blaspheme the Lord and Eli would not restrain them. This is the sign, God says. This is the sign to you, Eli. And really the sign for all of Israel, the sign of our times, the sign of judgment, the sign of who we really are and what we really deserve, both of these priests, the entire priesthood, it would seem, wiped out in a single day. And Eli receives the report of the ark, and he falls over and dies. And it is momentous, the way in which he dies. His neck is broken. He dies the death of the unredeemed. We read in Exodus 13, Every firstborn of a donkey. Yes, he's being compared to a donkey. You shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. The Lord breaks his neck, this stiff neck, and he says there will be no atonement for Eli or for his house. That's a pretty terrifying statement. How is it that we can even hear this kind of a text and not tremble? This is our God. The same God of the Old Testament who is still reigning, having revealed himself to us in grace in Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice, God's judgment is here fulfilled. There's a climax. Israel is judged. But it's more than just Israel. It's the place of worship itself. Look through later parts of the Old Testament and you will find that the devastation of Shiloh becomes a sort of touchstone, a parable of warning, a prophecy of judgment for future generations. Israel at this point is in a fight for its life. We thought it was against the surrounding nations. We thought it was the need for a king. We thought it was simply that things need to be reorganized and set on the right line. No! This is a fight to the death between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it doesn't seem to be going very well. The wife of Phinehas also dies. 
delivering her child. She hears of the ark's capture, the death of her father-in-law and her husband, and much more godly than either of them, it would appear. She groans at what has befallen the people of God. Again, why? 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 Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 55 and following. This is page 490 in the Pew Bibles. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword, invented his wrath and his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women also had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Why? Why? The idolatry of God's people. Now, notice how your God is revealed here, how God is so brilliantly revealed here. It would be easy to look at this and just fear and tremble, and we ought. But here we have God delivering over his glory, according to Psalm 78, delivering his glory to his enemies. It's as if God humiliates himself in his fury with his people. That doesn't mean that his glory is diminished. We'll come back to this. It does mean that he, in some sense, lays it aside and delivers it over to the power of those who hate him. Is not this the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, his true character in his resurrection, or rather in his incarnation, death, and resurrection? On account of God's wrath against his people, we read in Philippians 2, Jesus empties himself by becoming our our servant. And in Acts 2, 23, he is delivered into the hands of lawless men. He is the one, the power and glory of God, forsaken and handed over to the enemy. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking that something so terribly evil as Israel's idolatry would end up beginning to uncover the face of Messiah, emptying his glory. And not really, is he? But bringing the glory that he has down to the lowest place in the most humble service. See how this comes out in the text. The name of the child is Ichabod, which surely could have been said about the Lord. It is death. The glory is departed. But we know that in that moment, he actually gained for himself and for us the greatest glory. So is it really true? This is the sort of fundamental question I'm asking from the text this evening. Had the glory departed? It says it twice. That's a kind of prophecy of this lady whose name is not given to us. It's along the lines of Lamentations 4.1, how the gold has grown dim. And there is the sense in which it really has, but it, we could say really had departed before this, when Israel turned away from the true and living God to serve the idols. It is the glory of God's people to know God, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. All their efforts to accomplish God with us, God victorious for us, and in a miserable and desperate 
desolation. But has the glory really departed? Well, that would be true only if we believe that God's glory is in the articles of worship and not in the God that we worship. Only if we disregard the fact that the word of the Lord has come back to Israel and there's a prophet again has the glory departed. But the truth is that maybe the glory had grown dim in the eyes of Eli and the sons of Israel, but God was reappearing in their midst. Could it really be, in a certain sense, that the glory of God is actually beginning to dawn again? Could it be that this ark, which was Israel's glory, was the wrong place for them to vest their glory, and it should be in God himself? It is actually quite clear God's glory has not departed. He has come again. He has spoken to them. He's begun to be heard once more. Maybe this is even why they have the temerity to take the ark into battle. But his glory, this is the glory, and it's not the glory we expect. His glory is over his people in the judgment that he exerts upon them. The departure of the ark does not mean that God has departed. It implies rather that he is still with them, executing his judgment upon them. He actually hasn't left them. He is determined to bring them back to himself. As it says in 1 Peter 4, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God will not begin with the nations. His judgment will begin with his people. And he starts by cutting off the rotten branch of Eli and revealing his glory in the judgment and conquest of his stubbornly unbelieving people. Yes, he will have victory over the nations. But he will first have victory over our sins, our whole worship, our entire allegiance. And he will do this, not ultimately by destroying us, but by giving his glory in Jesus Christ into the hands of sinful men to die. That's the glory. That's what God secures to us. And I would like you to just pay attention here as we consider this greater glory that we have in Christ. And notice that the new covenant has threats. It's easy for us to think of the new covenant as simply grace from first to last, beauty, glory, light, blessedness, roses, and rainbows all the way home. And this is what it says in Hebrews 10. How much worse judgment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the spirit of grace. We know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is meant to be a warning to the church, to you and to me, to examine ourselves because God will not endure the outrage of his honor in his church. Beware, covenant youth. Beware, all God's covenant people, of thinking that the judgments of God are less because he has revealed more of his grace. He is still the terrifying God who judged the people in these days. Well, what are the Philistines? 
God will set up his throne over them, and he will ultimately bring the man of his own choosing. He will exalt Samuel. He will exalt David. He will bring in great, great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule in mercy, to rule in such a way that the angels who long to look into such things will be astonished and adore. Dear people of God, as long as you're found in him, you are not his enemy, but beware. We must beware in coming to the worship of God, in coming even to the Lord's table, in thinking that the outward things and the form have a power that we are free to exert for our own ends, rather than submitting to the God who presents, us to him, to, presents himself to us by them. Let us not have the form of godliness, but humble ourselves before the power of it. Let's pray together. O oh, our God, we praise you for your glory, glory that is still in the midst of your people. We praise you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our idolatry, and he will not leave us, and he'll never forsake us. Oh, our God, we confess that we have such hearts as well, so prone to set up the lordship of all things in our own hearts for our own selves. Forgive us, O oh Lord our God, that we so consistently break that first commandment and place ourselves in the position of the Antichrist, replacing Jesus, of whom alone we may inquire for our salvation and help. O oh Lord our God, we humble ourselves, we confess our shallow Christianity, we confess our attention to the forms and a lack of experiencing of the power of God to salvation in every area of our life. Grant, we pray, that your spirit would work through Christ dead for us and raised for us, that we may taste and enter in fully to that gospel that is the power of God to salvation. Draw near and hear us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.